I invite you to open with me to Malachi chapter 2 this morning. Malachi chapter 2. And as you're doing that, our kids are going to go ahead and head out uh, to the back here. Uh, ages 5 years old through 2nd grade, we've started a class back here for you. And so we would love for them to join us uh, here this morning and, and give you a break, Mom and Dad, as you uh, tune into the message this morning. So 5 years through 2nd grade, we've got a place back here for you. Again, if you'll open in, your, in the Word this morning to Malachi chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 17, and we're going to study just through verse 5 of chapter 3. And so we've only got six verses to cover, but there is a lot here. And so because I know there's a lot here and there's a lot of ground to cover, I'm going to be very short with the introduction to the sermon this morning. But I simply want to say this. I want you to understand that we do have a good reason to hear this word. That there's value in this word for every single person in the room today. Because the reality is this. When we are in the waiting, when we're in a season of waiting on God to move or waiting on God to do something around us or through us, it is then that we most often forget exactly who God is. It's then that we feel the most distant from him. It's then that we when we don't see God working around us, that we tend to discount even his very existence. Maybe you're in a similar place this morning, a season of waiting, and you wonder what God is up to. Now here at First Baptist Church, we're not waiting on anything. We're, our foot's on the gas and we're moving forward and God's doing so many things around us. But maybe you personally this morning, you're waiting on God to move. Maybe it's a job move. Maybe it's something happening in the life of your family. Maybe it's something happening, again, in your personal life. And it's in those seasons of waiting that we begin to forget exactly who he is. It's when we're susceptible to doubt most often. It's when we fall maybe into a season of spiritual dryness. Maybe it leads us to a shallow or a skin-deep sort of faith. Maybe you see the joy that others have as God is moving in their lives, and you look at your own life and you say, wait a minute, God, what's up with me? What are you doing in my life? Where are you exactly? But here's what's so beautiful about these six verses we're going to study this morning. Here's the truth. And hold on to this. God draws near to his people in the waiting. You see, it's when we feel most distant from him at times, when we're waiting on him to do something around us or through us, and it's then that God draws nearest to his people. When God takes that initiative and he says, I want to be close to you. I want to reveal to you exactly who I am, what my character is, what my promises are, and how I'm going to come through. With that in mind, would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. The word of the Lord through the prophet Malachi to his people then and to us today is this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? It's when you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight and he is delighted with them or else where is the God of justice? See or behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant that you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment. And I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is always good and it is always encouraging, but today it is especially encouraging. Lord, as we see that you draw near to your people, even in seasons of waiting. God, I pray that as we proclaim your word today, that it makes much of who you are, that we see clearly who you are. The things that are obscure become plain to us, that our lives are changed, that we leave this place today challenged and encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. In these six verses this morning, church, we see four reasons that God draws near to his people in the waiting. God has reasons for drawing close to his people. The first reason is this. God draws near to prove his character. In other words, God draws near to prove to us exactly who he is, that he is exactly who he said he is. You see, the word begins in verse 17 with a very direct accusation from God through the prophet Malachi. Listen to what that word says. God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. In other words, God says to them, I am tired of your accusations. I am tired of you leveling these threats against me and questioning my character. You see, I think it's interesting that God says here, I am wearied by your words. Over and over again, over the past month or so, as we've walked through Malachi, we've seen that God has pointed out the the wicked and the sinful activity of his people. And he's pointed out those faults in particular. But all along the way, there have also been these questions that God's people have asked of him. And God says here, I am wearied by that more than anything else. Remember what they said back in verse 2 of chapter 1. Just look back there with me, just a page over. God says, he says, I have loved you, yet you ask, how have you loved us? What a bewildering statement from God's people leveled to him, questioning his very love for them, questioning his very nature as the one who is always loving, always kind, and always just. Look down at verse 6. They continue to ask questions. God begins to explain to them in verse 6. He says, listen, I am your father and I am your master. And and I deserve to be treated as such. And yet, they ask at the end of verse 6, they say, how have we despised your name? Again, denying any immoral activity on their part. Denying that they've done anything wrong along the way. But here's why their spoken words are wearisome to God ultimately. They're wearisome because they reveal a heart condition about God's people. They reveal a deeper problem. Let's look at that deeper problem back in verse 17, right there at the end. Notice what the people say to him. 
says, when you say, this is what the people are saying to God. Everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them. They ask this question again, or else, where is the God of justice? Essentially, the people are denying God's existence by this accusation. Everything has culminated to this point as they ultimately questioned God's very personhood. They said, listen, God, we look around us and we see evidence that wicked people are prospering. That those who are righteous, they are struggling. And if you are God, that would not be happening. The reality is, church, their accusations of of God had had called his character into question. This is not a foreign concept, particularly in the Old Testament. Maybe you jot down these two verses of Scripture today. Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 1. The prophet Jeremiah says this. He says, you will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you. Yet, I wish to contend with you, he says. Why does the way of the wicked prosper, and why do all the treacherous live at ease? And then in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4, another one of the minor prophets, listen to what Habakkuk says. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict, it escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. You see, God's people, even God's prophets along the way, are questioning God's activity. And in essence, they're questioning his character. And what we see is that's okay to a point. But when it begins to dictate the way that you live like it has God's people here in Malachi, that's when we've crossed a line. And here's where we have to be careful, church. Here's how this really applies to us where it hits home this today. The reality is we are just as inclined as they were then to question God's character. You see these accusations all along the way that God's people have leveled against him. Listen, church, we are really not that much different than them. You say, how so? Have you ever watched someone who is wicked prosper and you experience struggle and heartache and pain? Have you ever came to God and said, God, I don't understand. I'm doing exactly what you've told me to do. I'm living the way you told me to live, and yet I'm struggling and they're prospering. Have you ever looked in in mainstream media even, or you see someone singing songs that are incredibly wicked and sinful, and yet they're making a fortune off of these things, and you say, God, what are you really up to here? We ask the same questions. But here's the truth. God always has an answer to those questions. We have to understand this accusation well because all of this is foundational to the way God is going to answer his people then and answer us today. Here's what we're going to see. Here's how God answers his people. This is so good. God's activity speaks loudly in defense of his character. God's activity... What God does in response to these accusations, it is the loudest defense that he offers in Scripture. Our tendency when people accuse us of things is to do what? We use our words. We talk back. We defend ourselves. Most of the time because our activity is not in defense of us. But God says, look at what I'm going to do. Now we're going to look at this in more detail, but I want you to see this at the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1. 
Look at what God says there. He says, see, I am going to send. That is an activity that he's going to do. He says, this is what I'm going to do in response to all of these accusations. He goes on to say at the end of verse 1, he says, see, he is coming. Again, God is actively working around and among his people in response to these accusations. And then in verse 5, at the very beginning of that verse, look at what it says. It comes up again. I will come. God says, I'm going to answer with my activity around you and among you. So maybe you also have some doubts about God's character today. Even if you've never voiced those to anyone around you, maybe you've been ashamed to say the things that may be in your heart today. Understand something. Just in the same way he's going to answer these people here, he answers us as well. So hang with me as we see God drawing near to his people, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, because we see this second reason that God draws near. Listen close. God draws near to fulfill his promise. God draws near to fulfill his promise. I love the way that verse 1 begins. There's one simple word there, and it's this, see. Or your Bible may say something like, behold. Here's what we said in redneck, ringold English back when I was in high school. We would say, hey, y'all, watch this. Maybe if we said that in Cave Spring too, I haven't heard it. Praise God. But that's what God is saying to his people here when he says, see, he's saying, hey, look at what I'm going to do among you. Look at how I'm going to actively answer your accusations. Hey, y'all, watch this, he says. So God goes on and he, he promised his people that one was going to come and prepare the way for a deliverer. Notice what it says in verse 1. He says, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. You see, God promised that someone was coming to prepare the way for the messenger, the savior, and the deliverer. Understand again, I said this at the very beginning of this series of sermons. Malachi is positioned both chronologically and physically at the end of the Old Testament. Which means all along the way, the prophets of God had been telling God's people some of these very same things. And all Malachi is doing here is he's echoing every bit of that in agreement with them. And he's saying, look, God is going to come through. Maybe he builds on the tradition of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. It's going to be on the screen. Listen to this. Isaiah says, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Now, I'm going to show you in just a moment how God kept this promise. But suffice it to say here right now. God is telling his people then, and he's telling us now, hey, I'm going to come through on this one. I'm going to get this right. No matter how you question my character and who I am, listen, I'm going to keep my promises. Then we read a little further in verse 1, and we find that a messenger is coming. Notice what it says. It says, then the Lord you seek, he will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant that you delight in. See, there's that word again. Behold, hey, look at this. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Again, Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 10, one of the other minor prophets, he says this, Daughter Zion, shout for joy and be glad, for I am coming, God says, to dwell among you. Again, God telling his people all along the way, he's emphasizing again here in Malachi, I'm going to come through on this. This is good. Write this down. 
They heard this as a promise that would be kept. But church, we hear this as a promise that has been kept. They heard all of this, and understand, 400 more years would pass before God ever came through. And yet we can look back now and say God did come through. Let me show you how that happens. Turn to Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. It's not going to be on the screen. You don't get to cheat that way. Grab a Bible. Turn here with me. Mark chapter 1 and verse 2. I want you to see how God begins to come through. How he, we can look back now and say, look, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. Mark begins right out the gate in the beginning of his gospel, pointing to the promises of God that were going to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus in the gospel. He says in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, listen to this, see I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one that is crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Doesn't that sound familiar? Notice what he did. Verse 4. John came. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized, baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Verse 6. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And here's where it is. He proclaimed... One who is more powerful than me is coming after me. I am not unworthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, exactly what God said he would do 400 years earlier, he came through and he did exactly what he said he was going to do. I'm not going to make you turn here, but Matthew chapter 21 and verse 12 we have this prophecy in Malachi 3, 1, where it says that I am coming to stand among you in the temple. Guess what happens in Matthew 21, 12? Jesus comes, and where does he stand? In the temple. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And here's why this is important, church. This is how this really meets the road with us. Listen carefully. We have good reasons to believe that God is who he says he is. We have good reasons to believe what we believe, church. I don't know where you're at this morning regarding faith or faithlessness. But can I remind you of something very graciously? Those of us who have faith in this God, we don't have a blind or foolish faith. It makes sense. In fact, I would say this. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist because there are so many good reasons to have faith in the God I know. God is drawing near to you and to me this morning. No matter your belief system, no matter your structure of understanding of who he is, God draws near to you and to me this morning to show all of us that he has kept his promises again and again. And those promises are for you and for me, ultimately for our salvation from sin. But notice this as we get to verse 2. Third reason that God draws near to his people. God draws near to purify our worship. He draws near to purify our worship. Notice verse 2. God begins with 
a couple of questions here. They've been asking questions of him, and he says here in verse 2, I've got a couple questions for you. Look at what he says. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? God says, listen, you're looking for me to come. You've asked where this God of justice is. Well, when I come, will you be able to stand before me? And the reality is, for most of the people hearing this very word, the truth was, no, they couldn't. We've seen their sinful and wicked activity, their defiled worship all along the way. And the reality was, they were not going to be able to stand in his presence. But watch what he does through these questions. You see, God's work of purifying our worship, it begins with him leading us to see ourselves the way he sees us. You see, if God's ever going to do a work of refining our worship and the way we come before him, we first have to rightly understand who we are, how broken we are, and how much in need of him that we are. Being near to God should cause our brokenness and our need for him to be made obvious. But unfortunately, we often don't see our brokenness, church, because we are too close or closer to the ungodly than we are to God himself. We are more comfortable associating with ungodliness because it makes us look pretty good. It makes us look right before the eyes of God. But when we come into intimate relationship with a holy God, it exposes our brokenness exactly for what it is. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verses 9 through 11. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 9. We, we highlight verse 10. Verse 10 is the verse we memorize. Verse 10 is the one that we use as we're walking th someone through the gospel and their need for Jesus. Because, again, verse 10, it says, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. But if we go back to verse 9, we begin to see how Paul understood himself. Listen to what he said. He says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. Paul says, no one who understands, including me. There is no one who seeks God. Guess what he says? Including me. At the beginning of verse 9, he says very plainly, we're all in this together. Church, we're all in this together. We all have to understand our position before God if we're ever going to rightly worship him. Before God ever does the, the hard work, the intimate work of purifying our worship and who we are, we have to understand how broken we are. As your pastor, I tell you this often, but I'm going to say it again. I am broken just as you are. I have my own difficulties, my own challenges. And as I walk with Jesus and he shows me my brokenness, every step along the way he reveals to me my need for him. I need Jesus just like you do. We also must understand this as we continue reading into verse 3. God is intimately involved in refining us and shaping us. There's a, an illustration that Malachi shares here by, to, to illustrate exactly the way God is doing this work among his people. Look right there at the end of verse 2 to begin with. He says, for he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. 
Notice what God is doing here. He's intimately involved with what's happening among his people. Now, I didn't know a lot about silversmith work until this week, and I'm still no expert. Uh, I'm not going to sit in front of a blazing hot furnace and, and do this process. But let me explain to you what I learned this week about this process. You see, a, a refiner, a silversmith, he would sit before this furnace. And he would have a, a bowl, like a clay pot, something that was incredibly resistant to heat. And he would drop some metal into that bowl. And he would put it over the flame. And, and as this bowl increased in temperature, he would watch the process begin to take place. And he's got to watch it close. He, he can't take his eyes off even for a second because guess what? If it gets too hot, everything catches on fire. And the whole process is ruined. But what he does is he sits there and he watches this process take place as all of the impurities, all of the metals that are not silver and not gold, they begin to burn away. And guess what he does? He, he takes a tool and he begins to scrape those off the top. He moves them out of the way. And the flame, it continues to burn hotter and hotter and hotter. And as the temperature increases, all of the impurities begin to, to burn away. And you know how he knows when he's done? He removes it from the flame. He lets it cool. He takes it out of the bowl there and he looks at it. And if he can see his reflection in it, he's done. Church, listen. As God purifies us, as he makes us and shapes us into who he desires for us to be, that work is not done until he sees himself in us. When we worship him with impure hearts, guess what? That is no reflection of who God is. So God begins to work. God begins to move, move around us. And he intimately gets involved with who we are. You see, God did this same work all along the way from the beginning of creation. I love Genesis chapter 2, the picture of when God created man. You see, God spoke everything into existence, it says in Genesis chapter 1. We get to Genesis chapter 2, and guess what? He begins to create mankind, and it says, hold up. And he, and he reaches down, and he scoops up some dust. And he forms man with his, with his hands. I like to say that God played in the dirt for a minute. And then he did what? He breathed his very breath into him. He breathed life into man. This did not happen with any other piece of God's creation. Why? Because God is intimately involved with us. Ultimately, as we look at the end of verse 2, and, and 3, excuse me, we see that all of this process of purifying our worship is ultimately about bringing glory to God. It's not even about us. It's not just for our good. It's ultimately for his glory. It's about him. Look at verse 3. Again, he, he will be like a refiner. We see all of that. And it says, then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Only when this process is done are they going to present offerings in righteousness righteousness something impossible before and the offerings of judah and jerusalem will please the lord as in the days of old and the years gone by i love that phrase at the end of verse four god says those were the good old days you ever thought about the good old days we think about classic cars we think about a simple life we think about safety in our culture and all those kind of things we say man if we could just have that again and what does god say here he says listen the good days the best days were when you were worshiping me with a pure heart. When we walked in relationship with one another. Church, we spend our whole lives chasing this illusion of what life should be. We do everything possible. 
We sell everything out. Why? So that we can advance our own lives and chase this idea of what life should be. And yet God says here, if you'll only draw near to me as I draw near to you, those are the best days. And guess what, church? When we're walking through good times and bad times, we will know that we're walking with pure hearts with Jesus. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for just a second. These young men, they were faithful to God. And guess what it got them? They got thrown in a furnace. They got thrown in literally that refiner's fire. And it says at the end of that whole ordeal that everyone looked into the furnace and guess what they saw? They saw one that looked like the Son of Man among them. You may walk through these fires. You may walk through these fiery ordeals, these trials in your life, and it may not feel like the good old days. But those were the best days for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Because Jesus was with them. Last reason. Everything takes a turn right here in verse 5, just being honest with you. The last reason God draws near to his people, he draws near to judge our actions. He draws near to judge our actions. There's a paragraph break in your Bible, perhaps, when you get to verse 5, and it's for good reason. Again, there is a turning point in this passage. All along the way, God is saying, I'm drawing near to you, and it's for your good. I'm drawing near to you, and it's for my glory. I'm drawing near to you, and you're going to be changed because of it. But the reality is, as we get to verse 5, the the audience shifts a little bit. Because all along the way, there might have been some people hearing this for the first time who took heart, took it to heart. They made note of what God was saying. But here's the truth. There were still some that day who didn't listen. There were still some that day who didn't take this to heart. There were still some that day who resisted who God is, just like there are still some today who resist who God is. Notice what happens. Those who persistently resist the Lord, they ultimately find themselves on the wrong and most terrible side of God's judgment. This is serious. Those who persistently, throughout their lives, resist who He is, this is what awaits. Notice what it says at the beginning of verse 5. A very matter-of-fact statement God makes. He says, I will come in judgment. He says, the buck has stopped here. He says, I've told you exactly what it means when I draw near. I've told you exactly what it means, how, how your life can be forever changed because of me. But if you choose not to listen, I will draw near in judgment. They were asking back in verse 17, remember the foundational question to all of this. They said, where is God? Is there even a God if we look at all this injustice around us? Listen, if that question persists to the end of a person's life, listen, this is what awaits. This is why we tell people about Jesus, church. This is why we share the gospel with them, like I'm going to share it with you in just a moment. God specifically judges activities that are evidence that one is separated from him. It's not judgment for the sake of judgment. He lists out these these specific sins, these specific activities that are evidence for one who is separated from God. There's a list there. You got sorcerers, you got adulterers, you got people who oppress the poor, those who ignore the helpless, the orphans, the widows, and all these different crowds of people. But there's really just two categories that he has in mind here. Because this list is by no means exhaustive. The two categories are this. The first one is 
He judged those who looked for God elsewhere. He judged those who looked for God elsewhere. The category mentioned there are its sorcerers. This could be any number of individuals who are looking for God in all the wrong places. Practically, what this looks like today, it may not be sorcery or witchcraft or anything like that, but listen, it might very simply be you're living your life in such a way that says there is no God. You're separated from him. You don't know him. But secondly, he judges this. He judges those who denied justice to the helpless. He lists out these helpless individuals. He talks about orphans and widows, and all of these fall into one category, those who are really um, at the throes of society, at the mercy of society, and how they're going to care for themselves. And God says, I'm going to judge them. We should be mindful, church, that we are the greatest perpetrators of injustice. It's not God. We may seek God to be just, and when it seems like he is not, we may practically deny his existence. The question for us this morning is this. Are we willing at the same time to stand before him, laid bare just as we are, open to his judgment? We should recognize that those first hearing this identified as God's people. We look back at verse 1 of Malachi Chapter 1, where the audience is identified, and it says, I'm writing to you, Israel. Understand who Israel was. This was God's chosen people. No doubt there were those listening to this who said, wait a minute, I'm good. I've got the right heritage. I've got the right last name. I've got the right lineage. I've got all the right tie-ins religiously and spiritually. This isn't for me. Church, I want to say this very clearly. Whether you've been here for 30 minutes or 30 years, that's a broken record for me, I know, but I mean it. 30 minutes or 30 years, this word is for you. This call to salvation is for you. If practically you are living as one who does not know God, this message is for you. Here's the good news of the gospel. All along the way, we've talked about God drawing near to his people for a specific reason. In Jesus, we see the culmination of all of this activity of God drawing near. We saw a glimpse of that a moment ago. But listen to what Jesus says himself in John chapter 10 and verse 10. He says, I have come. What did he say all along the way in Malachi? What did he say? I'm coming. I will come. I'm on my way. He said, hey, y'all watch this. Remember that? Guess what? He says in verse 10 of John chapter 10, he says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. He says, I've drawn near, ultimately, to change who you are, to change your life forever. Paul says the most eloquent statement regarding the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God. What does that mean? Church, it means exactly what we've talked about all along the way this morning. We are helpless without him. We cannot stand. That question I asked earlier, he said, who's going to be able to stand at my judgment? Who's going to be able to stand when I come? Listen, the answer to that question is no one. No one but Jesus. 
But here's what the beautiful thing that happens with the gospel is. We come to Jesus. We trust him as our savior. We surrender our lives to him. And guess what? He exchanges our unrighteousness for his righteousness. We become like him. And so then we can stand before him. And without him, we cannot stand. My plea with you this morning. The call of the word this morning. Again, I don't know where you stand regarding faith. We have good reasons to believe what we believe. We've seen that. And the call of God this morning is that you would trust him as your only savior. The call of God this morning is that you would come to this moment before you ever get to verse five where he says, I'm coming to judge you. He, the call of God is, listen, I want you to sit before me. I want you to let me put you in that bowl over that refiner's fire. And I want to watch everything else burn away. All the impurities. Everything that is not of me. I want it to burn away. And I want to see this work happen in your life. And I want to change you forever. Ultimately, listen, so that when he looks at us, he sees a reflection of himself. 